The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. When you think of Washington, D.C., surely Congress and the crazy world of politics is front and center. But this year, the real action isn't going on in the Capitol building. It's happening at the government's regulatory agencies, specifically the Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC has issued a staggering 33 proposed rules in the 15 months from October 2021 to December 2022. Notably, from October 2021 to March 2022, a six-month period, the SEC released 22 of those 33 proposed rules. As a comparison, from 2011 through 2020, the average number of proposed rules is around 15 per year. In addition to the increased number of rules, the SEC has condensed the comment period time for investment firms and other stakeholders to weigh in from 60 to 90 days to just 30 to 60 days. Needless to say, this accelerated rulemaking timeline has the financial services industry rushing to understand the rules, write carefully crafted comment letters, and as many of the proposed rulings become final rules, rushing to implement them appropriately. Joining me today to help explain the SEC's numerous undertakings is Susan Olson, General Counsel of the Investment Company Institute. The ICI is a leading association representing regulated investment funds with the mission of strengthening the foundation of the asset management industry to ultimately benefit long-term individual investors. In her role as the Institute's Chief Legal Officer, Susan is responsible for the full range of legal and regulatory matters affecting the Institute and its members. She joined ICI as Senior Counsel International Affairs in 2007 and served as the Chief Counsel of ICI Global since 2014. Before joining ICI, Susan served in the Division of Investment Management at SEC, where she worked in the international branch of the division's Office of the Chief Counsel. Before joining the commission, Susan worked in private practice. She received her undergraduate degree from Wellesley College and her law degree from the University of Virginia. Thank you for joining us today, Susan. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Your bio clearly shows that you're the expert we need to help unpack what is going on at the SEC. And am I crazy or do we have the same name spelled exactly the same way? You're exactly right. It's such a funny, you know, sort of coincidence that we have, we spell it with an O, not an E. That's right. I think it's awesome that I get to interview another Susan Olson. Since you are the very high profile in DC, I am often thought of as the other Susan Olson. So to level set, Susan, can you please explain to our audience who the SEC is and their main function and responsibilities? So the SEC is the primary federal regulator for our securities markets, intermediaries like broker dealers and advisors, as well as what we call registered investment companies, which are like mutual funds, ETFs and closed end funds. And think about them as having um, several operating divisions. They have the division of investment management that's focused on regulated funds like mutual funds and investment advisors. You have the Division of Trading and Markets. Again, they're focused on the market structure and what's going on there and broker-dealers, underwriters. You also have the Division of Corporation Finance that's focusing on the disclosure and reports that 
operating companies who have offered their securities publicly are filing and, and making available to the market and investors. And they have some other groups too, including inspections and examination, as well as enforcement and a few field offices, but they are our primary regulator. And so the chairperson of the SEC is Gary Gensler. Is he a presidential appointee? Short answer, yes. So you have the SEC is headed by a five-member commission with commissioners who are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And the president of the United States designates the chair. And today, that being Chair Gensler. What can you tell us about the current chair, uh, Chair Gary Gensler? So he was sworn in in April 2021, and so he's been the chair for just over, you know, say 18 months. And before that, he was a professor at MIT's Sloan School of Management, and he also served as chair of the Maryland Financial Consumer Protection Commission. Well known to us previously, he also was chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission during the Obama administration and you know that was a time right after the financial crisis and the CFTC was doing a lot of work on the swaps markets and derivatives. And he also worked at Goldman Sachs prior to that. So he is um, very entrenched in our industry. It's been his career. Yes. How is Chair Gensler different from the other chairs you worked with in the past? Or is he, or is he the same? I think you find him a very you know, strong leader. You can tell that, um, he has you know, very clear ideas on his agenda and what he wants to do. And I would say the, the sort of intensity and velocity of the regulatory agenda of the SEC is, is very, very different. And along with its breadth and complexity, I feel like when I was at the SEC and in the intervening years, it, it was a much more measured, deliberate sort of pace of rulemaking. And I think some people felt maybe it was too slow at times. You know, I will say under the previous chair of the SEC, the Division of Investment Management did do a lot of work. But this is, again, as I said, a lot of different proposals coming out. Yeah, so with the staggering number of proposed rules this year, which rules have ICI spent the most time focusing on and which, if any, concern you and the ICI the most? So. This is hard because I think what has been so challenging for us as funds, thinking about, so funds issue securities, but they, and they have investment advisors that work with their boards and, you know, the fund help it pursue its investment objectives and strategies. But we're all, we're, so we're investors and we're also issuers in the market of securities. So we are going to be paying attention to rulemakings related to corporate or operating company disclosure, like climate-related disclosure. So we're looking at those types of things coming from usually the Division of Corporation Finance, right, and, and coming out of there. But we also have rulemakings related to market structure or reporting in the market, things that investors have to um, provide. So we're having to look at that, too. And then we have some very significant rulemakings that are directly about funds and advisors to those funds. So we're looking at, you know, quite just such a large number because of, of who and what we are. Funds are both issuers and investors. And so I would say that's what's been so challenging. There's just so many that are of, of relevance and of importance to our to funds. 
So um, I know that there are some that, that we have discussed, like the liquidity rules, um, the SEC fund name rules, the ESG disclosure, and you mentioned the climate rule. Um, can you uh, talk about any of these in a little more detail? So you have right now a proposal out from the Division of Investment Management related to liquidity risk management, swing pricing, which is a mechanism by which <clears throat> a change in the price of a fund would happen. You'd have to estimate the transaction costs that the fund is incurring under certain circumstances. So those are the costs that a fund would incur to sell securities to meet redemptions or to invest cash that they receive from new investors in a fund. So swing that's what swing pricing aims to do. And they've also, part of that proposal is what they call a hard close, which would mean mutual fund orders would have to be to the fund or a, a specific entity associated with the fund by 4 p.m. And so that would be um, quite a change and mean that a lot of people who give their um, orders to intermediaries would have by four o'clock now, you might have to do it you know, several hours earlier in order for them to get where they need to get to in order to meet this proposed hard close concept. And then part of that rule, part of this proposal also includes um, additional reporting that funds would have to do and make available. And that would apply to all funds, not just mutual funds. The liquidity risk management changes are very, very dramatic. Um, they would really change the way our funds are managing their liquidity. So, and, and perhaps make some investment strategies not available or able to be offered in an open-end fund, mutual fund. Um, and the fund names rule, again, is a proposal about what fund names, fund names are, cannot be misleading. And so the SEC is proposing to bring a lot more funds under that um, rule, which requires them to have a, what they call an 80% policy. And you know, funds that have a particular investment focus would be pulled in, but funds that have, it's an overall portfolio characteristic you would not have to comply with this, what they call an 80% um, investment policy. And, you know, I think it's got a lot of interpretive issues. I think the spirit of what, you know, everyone wants a fund name to be, which is not misleading, everyone agrees with that. But this rule is, is raising a lot of issues about investment strategies and overall portfolio characteristics like international and global, they want you to be kind of on the other side and have this 80% policy. But when you think about what everything in your portfolio is going to be global, any security or company that you're investing in is global. So I think, and so I, I think we're having a little bit of struggle about what would be the administratability of this rule and therefore the costs of this rule would be quite, quite significant. Um, so we think there are better approaches for addressing the problems, and that would be the more thoughtful and beneficial for investors approach overall. And they, and so to the point about the velocity and the number of proposals they're issuing, the SEC has several pending 
proposals related to disclosure, which we understand that those are going to be helpful for investors in terms of better understanding their funds. We think it would be valuable to really look at those and leverage those to improve investor understanding and then take then step back and take a look at, okay, what is it about the names rule that we can you know, modernize or touch on to, again, help with what you're trying to do, which is help investors better understand their funds. So real quick on the names rule. The names rule has been around for many years, right? I mean, almost 20 yeah. years or better. Yeah. And yeah. it did, like you said, it, it did serve a purpose. And banks that fell into the names rule with the 80% um, threshold were things like high yield or municipal, or if you called yourself a China fund or, you know, South American. And those made sense. But as you said, you know, now that they're opening up, they want to put growth in there. They want to put value. And they have also put a, a if you fall out of that 80% threshold, if you fall under it, you only have 30 days to get yourself back up to that 80% threshold, correct? Right. So it is, they have, fun, their proposal fundamentally changes how this rule would operate. And you're exactly right. Um, you would have this, you're going to have to monitor this daily and you only have 30 days to get back into quote compliance. You're going to be disclosing the number of days, like say you fell to 78%, right? You're going to have to be disclosing that. And so it's going to be, you know, and I, I think you you wonder, is that going to confuse investors? And what are you going to make of that? If you're out of quote, if you're at 78 instead of 80 or 81, what are you really communicating to investors? And what's the usefulness of that? Um, so I think that is something, you know, that really needs to be given more thought. And I would, you know, even if you look at out in the industry, how do you, um, third parties evaluate funds, they're not looking at the name, right? They're not doing it this way. Well, and just the fact they want to throw, and I'm going to use this again, the, the growth and the value. Here at Natixis, you know, we have managers who uh, manage growth portfolios that have names that might look like value and vice versa. We have funds that are value, but have growth names like tech. I mean, it's under it's to the manager's discretion on what his or her risk profile and analysis look like to determine what they want to hold. So back to your point, you know, whose interpretation and what third party gets to determine what stock is always growth and what stock is always value and when they when they change lanes. No, I completely so, agree. I think it's it's very subjective. Um, but funds have disclosed in their prospectuses, explained what their strategies are, and they would explain that. And, you know, we even put in our comment letter, we put in descriptions about the different value and growth indices and their own criteria for what, you know, some of them have three criteria, some have five criteria, you'll see some overlap. So to your point, there's some subjectivity and you have investment staff that are looking at, you know, these and, and coming to different decisions at times, even within the same advisor, you know, you may be, you, portfolio managers may see a company differently. And then you also talked a lot about disclosures and, you know, disclosure, it seems to me that when the SEC or any regulatory agency wants better disclosures because there's a problem. And there, there was a problem, I think, in our industry. And that problem was greenwashing. 
you know, they have been trying to address greenwashing. What do you think about how this rule looks? Do you think that they are truly trying to address greenwashing or have they gone a little further than they need to? So on green, you know, on just generally on greenwashing, I, I think it's important to realize that the SEC also set up a task force, right? To from the enforcement group and the inspections group, and they were going to be working with um, the Division of Investment Management. So I think on greenwashing, they have been looking at, you know, what are the statements and explanations and descriptions that are available to investors or clients? You've also had um, FINRA, which looks at our advertising, regulated fund advertising. Again, they've been looking at the issue too. What are you saying in your advertisements? And what are you saying in your, your sort of filings in the SEC, your prospectus, summary prospectus, your annual, semi-annual reports, all of that. So you do have those efforts going on. And then they did have a proposal related to ESG fund disclosure. And I do think it is in part to help with greenwashing. But I think the, the bigger issue is to help investors better understand kind of what their funds are doing. Um, and to sort of improve that and organize that information better and help people understand the different types of ESG funds. Um, I do, I think we had some comments on some of the proposals, um, but I think we agree with the goal of trying to help investors better understand these strategies. And I would remind you that there was also just adopted a new streamlined or tailored um, shareholder report, which is a really positive development. That report has not been changed in decades. So this, I, I really do feel like the shareholder report, which people get annually and semi-annually, is gonna be an improved document too. Again, just contributing to this investor understanding about what their funds are doing. So we just spent about 10 minutes talking about three rules. Um, which just goes to show how complex all of these rules are. And we could probably spend three more hours, but I do want to move on a little um, and ask you what potential new rules are pending release that ICI is gearing up for? So, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a list. I mean, we just talked about the names rule, the ESG disclosure, but people are sort of forgetting there's also amendments to money market for money market funds that are out there in we expect to be adopted at some point. They also have a proposal out there about how you outsource, how investment advisors outsource and use through third parties to help them do various functions. Um, there's also, now when you think about markets and things like that, we've got proposals out there about securities lending disclosure, beneficial ownership reporting, like when you, uh, when a, um, entity owns a certain percentage of an issuer like Microsoft, you might have to, to put a report in. They've got changes there. And that's some of that is the timing of those reports, not, not just the content. You've also got, you know, I'm listing some of the de uh, some of the market ones, because again, we have to follow that. They want to change the definition of dealer, the definition of exchange. We have T plus one settlement, and that's out there. And, you know, I think you can think these sound simple, but all that has to happen behind it is extremely complex. We also have a rule out there related to cybersecurity risk management for funds and advisors. And again, 
They're already doing some of it, but the SEC is putting forth very prescriptive ways that they want you to do things. We have short sale disclosure. Um, we also, you know, you run through these and forget it's not just the SEC that we look for, like the Department of Labor just issued a rule related to ESG and investment options that can be included in, say, a 401k plan. We have CFTC, as I mentioned, FINRA. And you forget that over this year, we also had, you know, sanctions coming out related to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. So it's it's been a, it's really intense, very, very intense. Very, very overwhelming. Um, let me just throw something out there. Do you think that Chair Gensler and the SEC, that they're actually trying to kind of remake the capital markets? They would say, I think they're trying to modernize. I think they think there are technology and other changes are demanding, you know, this modernization. And I, I think we understand that. But again, how you do it and the pace and style that you, you know, endeavor to do that really matters. When you're trying to do, you know, five or six things at the same time, it it starts to scare people because it's the same people. It might be the same systems, but you all also have to be coordinated um, because everybody has to make these changes together and at the same time, but they're doing them. Some of them have proprietary systems, right? Some of them are third party systems. You may be buying new systems. You may be just redesigning. And then when you put it together, Sometimes you have inadvertent problems, right? It's kind of like when you get ready to decorate for the holidays and you plug it all in and oh, something, you know, happens unexpected. You thought you tested all those lights or whatever. And, you know, I think it's the same thing. I think people get nervous about the sheer number of proposals. And I would, and they're big and they're noteworthy. And I would also say the compliance periods are short. It's not just these comment periods. But they're also envisioning a lot of compliance periods of 12 to 24 months or shorter. And so you've got these all on top of each other. So as we said, you know, to your point at the beginning, I pointed out that, you know, the when the rules really started coming out, it was around October 2021, which is about six months after he was confirmed. So six months to gear up and, you know, to say you know, five or six coming out scare people. There were 22 that came out the six month period and 33 in the past 15 months alone. And so you mentioned this is going to make it really difficult for investment firms of all sizes to begin to comply with these rules, given they're being released in bunches and not staggered. Now, as of this recording, the chair has not put out a spring, his spring agenda. And you just went over some of the rules the ICI is gearing up for. So I think this, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Should the industry prepare for 2023 to be equally as weighty with rulemaking as 2022? Um, I think you're going to see adoptions, but yes, I, I do think we're going to have some weighty proposals. We're expecting some equity market structure reform proposals um, to come out. And there's rumors of a December 14 open hearing at the SEC. Nothing's been published yet. It's usually like seven days before that. So we're sort of anxiously waiting to see what that will notice. But we do know he, the commission and Chair Gensler have some ideas related to equity market structure. So again, 
cron plays where funds are investing on behalf of their investors, right, to achieve all kinds of equity strategies. Think about the range of mutual funds and ETFs that pursue equity strategies. So we will be watching for that. So, and I will say we have two letters due on December 27th. I mean, and we've got, as you said, the liquidity risk management is going to be due later in January, maybe early February. And the two letters, the 27th, one is the outsourcing to advisors. The other one's about treasury market clearing. That's a big, complicated issue. Um, I really, I cannot emphasize how many experts within our members that we really have to go to to understand and really dig into these issues. It's very, these are hard. Wow, weighty is the word. So do you think the SEC is taking into consideration the burden of dropping rules and bunches, continuing the aggressive pace of rulemaking, the shortened time for investment managers and others to submit comment, thoughtful comment letters, and as you pointed out, um, you, you know, getting compliance geared up to uh, carry out the new proposal. Do you think they're taking this into consideration that bunching all these up is, is extremely burdensome and in some cases going to be almost impossible to do? It doesn't feel like it. Just as I said, you know, just, you know, I think a lot of people were raising concerns at the end of the summer or during the summer, even into the fall. And yet here we find ourselves again with some big letters due on the same day. Last April, we did six letters and we're due on a single day. Um, and we had two proposals adopted in um October, one on proxy voting, which again, we understand that form needed to be modernized. This is for funds, how they report, how they vote on different proxy statements and what their votes are. And the streamlined shareholder report that I talked about, short, short compliance periods, lots and lots of work. It's going to, you know, the reporting, the proxy reporting and the shareholder reports, you're gonna, the shareholder reports are gonna have to be delivered differently. They repealed a rule that we had that had been in place for a couple of years, and we had spent a lot of time educating um, investors. Look, you're gonna get a card that will let you know that your shareholder report is available online, or you can call to get a paper copy. They've pulled that rule now, and we're going back to the old delivery methods. So it's it's it doesn't feel like it at all. Wow. So in your professional opinion, are there consequences of such an aggressive rulemaking agenda that the SEC seems to have? I do. I think these are complex areas and the securities markets have gotten more complex over time and technology is changing them. I think these are important issues, but you want to have truly adequate and fulsome opportunities for analysis and input. And I really do, I would say even I and everyone here who's long time experienced, many have previously worked in the SEC, they've worked in the industry. I learned something new every time. There are, there's so much to know about all these different areas. And so then you're into what does the proposal look like? Have you done a good job understanding, you know, kind of what it is today versus where you want to go in the future and how you're putting that together? So that it's really important that the 
the staff and the SSC spend a lot of time on that and get that right. And then we similarly need time to analyze it, read it. These things are hundreds of pages and they have lots of footnotes and the footnotes can really, really matter. So you, and then you're look, thinking about implementation. You need to be able to do that, you know, responsibly and expertly. And I do, I have concerns that with the complexity, variety, volume, velocity of rules, that you have sort of, you do have a risk of unexpended, uh, I'm sorry, unexpected problems and errors and misunderstandings. And I do, I worry about that, even as the proposals come out and as they get adopted, even we know we've probably missed something because we've had such a short time and we don't have time to go back and reread, rethink. We are going through other people's comment letters, but we immediately are served up some other new hard proposal that we have got to turn our attention to. So I worry about it. Yes, I do worry about the risk of so much coming out. We're doing the best we can, but we know there's a lot rolled up in these proposals and there's a lot you know, on their own, but when you do them all together, it it it's even it gets a little bit more unsettling. How the how is this all going to come together? Yeah, you used the word intense, and um, I'll use overwhelming. It sounds just very overwhelming. Much of the burden will fall on firms' legal and compliance divisions, but what about corporate boards? Will their role change and become more burdensome? So I think for fun boards, yes, they're going to have a lot of responsibility for being a part of this and for understanding it. I do think corporate boards for, you know, issuer companies, they have more pressure just with the proxy process, and they're going to be paying attention to new disclosure or reporting that corporate issuers are going to have to be um, providing to markets and investors. So, you know, I do know that for fund boards, you know, they are watching a lot of this and they're a part of all of this. So we have indeed unpacked a lot today, and I hope our listeners have a better understanding of what the SEC is doing and how investment firms could be impacted. Natixis Investment Managers is a member of the ICI, and we have leaned on their leadership on these and other important regulatory issues over many years and decades. ICI is considered one of the most influential and effective trade associations in Washington, D.C. Susan, I can't thank you enough for everything you've, you've talked about today. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I really appreciate talking with you, and um, I hope investors will start to take a look at some of this stuff closely and uh, really think about they themselves uh, being heard in this process, because these are big changes for your funds. And uh, I think it's important that everybody be aware of them and think about them. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much. We hope to have you back. And I am sure that uh, we will continue to work together on some of these issues. The Government Relations Team and the Texas Investment Managers provide you, our clients, with resources that help you navigate and understand the complex and, at times, chaotic world of policy and politics. To read our articles and listen to other podcasts on topics like the housing industry, the midterm elections, and the recently released rule from the DOL on retirement plans and ESG, please visit our website at im.natixis.com. Many thanks to you for listening and hope you join us again.
Important information. For listeners outside the United States, Natixis Investment Managers Distribution and Service Groups include Natixis Investment Managers SA, Luxembourg, Natixis Investment Managers International, France, and their affiliated distribution and service entities. These entities conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage are not available to all investors in all jurisdictions. For additional information and important podcasts disclosures for listeners outside the U.S., please consult im.natixis.com slash intl slash podcasts dash and dash other media. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis Investment Managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis Investment Managers entity. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Distribution, LLC is located at 888 Boylston Street, Suite 800, Boston, MA02199, member SIPC at tracks, 5242756, 1, 1, expiration date, December 31st, 2023, POD 199 November, 2022.